Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we'll discuss proposed changes to tax policy, the federal budget, and the multi-employer pension bailout with AAF's Director of Fiscal Policy, Gordon Gray. Gordon, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. How have you uh, been throughout, you know, the last couple of weeks with everything going on? Uh, hanging in there. I actually um, took my first train trip. It's my first travel other than in a car. Um, it was necessitated by the fact that the car was, I was supposed to get it back from the garage. But um, uh, so that was interesting. It was the Amtrak I had remembered. Uh, the broken escalator at the end of the trip was the chef's kiss for the yep. entire experience. But I arrived. So I haven't quite gone back to public transportation yet, but I'm not necessarily looking forward to it. But I guess it is one indication that this might all be over soon. Yeah, I, I will tell you that if you were to ask me what my first trip would be, you know, if we went back, you know, went back in time and asked, oh, what, what's your first post-COVID trip? I don't think I would have said an Amtrak from Charlottesville. <laughs> uh, I think it would have involved an airplane and a beach. Yeah. Alas. Weird how things work. So let's jump into things and start talking about what we came here to talk about today. President Biden's new $2.25 trillion spending bill, the so-called American Jobs Plan, includes right. a number of changes to tax policy. Right. Uh, before we dive into the, those specifics, what are the top line numbers here? How much would it increase taxes? What are the key changes and how might it impact the economy? Yeah, so just in, in broad strokes, the American Jobs Plan is a substantial federal expenditure on the order of um, $2.3 trillion over the next decade. It is nominally paid for with uh, tax increases, business tax increases over the next 15 years or so. So the administration says when this actually becomes legislation, then the Congressional Budget Office, Joint Committee on Tax will score it. And then we'll see what is actually moving uh, in terms of dollars and cents with this this proposal. I mean, fundamentally, uh, as a policymaker, when you decide to involve the federal government in a substantial ex expenditure and you're going to borrow some of it uh, and or raise taxes to finance it, then fundamentally you have to start asking some cost-benefit tests. So to the extent that you're going to raise business taxes on America's employers, which just on its face seems a little odd considering we do want people to go work for employers, right? Like that's the point coming out of this pandemic is hiring. So setting that aside, um, if you're going to presume that a good tax policy coming out of a recession is to raise taxes on employers to finance the federal government making, quote, investments, then presumably you would have to ask whether or not the cost of raising those taxes on investment, because fundamentally a lot of these are capital taxes, if the investment that, you're, that will be foregone in the U.S. economy is worth less than the investment that will be initiated on the basis of these expenditures. My read of federal policy, federal spending policy, is that they are not the best judge of getting the bang for the buck quite right. <laughs> Nothing about $2 trillion being handed over to federal agencies 
really smacks of good cost-benefit analysis. So at the top line, that's my biggest problem, is that this thing is being marketed as an infrastructure bill. It's not. There's less than on the order of 6% of this is being spent on roads and bridges, the stuff that we're told is absolutely essential. It's, it's a relatively de minimis share of this thing. There's Medicaid expansions. There's more tax credit for green energy. And then you're laying on top of it a tax regime that would move the United States back to being substantially uncompetitive on an international basis. And the arguments being used by the administration to rationalize this are just wrong. They're just wrong on their face. And so I suspect that this, this trade-off will animate a lot of the public policy debate from now and through the summer. Yeah, I think it was what, July is their, their goal date to have something about yeah, right. Good luck. Uh, all the spending stuff is is eye-popping eye on its face, but the tax stuff here is also kind of eye-popping. So I want to go through the, some of those specifics if, right. you're, if you're game. So let's look at the proposed increase to the corporate tax rate. Um, that's the big ticket item, you know, the big, the big one here. Would you walk us through this proposal and its potential impact? Yeah. So the Biden administration, quite simply, is proposing to raise the corporate tax rate to 28%. This has a number of problems. First and foremost is corporate taxes are just terrible tax policy. They're famously described as, the of all the taxes that you can impose, the, this is the most destructive. And there's a massive gap sort of between the rhetoric and the reality when it comes to corporate taxes. And, and of course, I get it. And in fact, this is threaded throughout all of the tax policies in the American Jobs uh, Plan. Is These are complicated. They are nominally, but not in reality, borne by faceless, galactically profitable multinational corporations, everybody's favorite target. And the problem is, of course, is that Corporations don't ultimately pay the taxes. When you when you impose taxes on corporations, there isn't this sentient being. There isn't like some blob somewhere called Amazon that has a bank account. Amazon is the legal structure between its customers, its employees, and its shareholders. That's where the money is. It's either going to be paid out in compensation to employees, it will be invested in the business, or it will be borne out um, in uh, you know the price discovery in, in Amazon's products, how much they can charge and how much they can spend uh, to market their products. That's the nexus of corporate taxes. It's complicated, it's complex, but I'll tell you what, Amazon isn't paying the taxes. It's employees, it's shareholders, and customers ultimately are. And that's what's being lost in all of this, is that uh, when you raise taxes on companies, ultimately you have to look at what's called the incidence. So that is who ultimately bears the, the price of the tax. And the literature is clear on this, is that it is borne not just by capital, so not just people who own the shares in the company, but by employees in labor. Now, there is a rather robust and vigorous debate in, in the literature on just how large a share labor bears in this, but it is greater than zero, and that is undisputed. And so when you raise taxes, on corporations, you are also raising taxes on the workers. That doesn't seem like a particularly good idea. The other issue that particularly concerns me with respect to the corporate tax increase is that capital is a lot more mobile than labor. And so to the extent that these taxes are, are in part borne, on, uh, borne by capital, you can move some of that capital out of the taxing jurisdiction, not all of it. And we saw that back when the U.S. had the highest corporate tax in the world, 
seems like every month there was a new company saying, boy, this is lousy. We want to continue managing a company in America. We want to have markets in America, but the tax policy is just junk. And so we're moving a lot of our um, capital out of the United States. And those are inversions. We used to see those all the time. There's plenty of, of things to gripe about when it comes to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I've got you know my own list. Everybody does. That's federal policy. Um, but I'll tell you one thing is that after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was enacted, these inversions stopped. Yeah. They just they just stopped because the incentives finally outweighed the benefits of leaving the United States for tax reasons. It's not that hard. Yeah. <laughs> I think on the last episode where Doug and I were briefly talking about the American Jobs Plan is that he said something like only one, you only had one inversion since the 2018 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act happened, which is kind of stunning. And the fact that we'd want to reverse that seems not logical to me. Yeah. And that, and that's one of the other more frustrating aspects of the tax policy pro- proposal here is that there are aspects of the proposal that tacitly acknowledge that these policies will make all else equal, doing business in America more difficult. So on the one hand, they raise the corporate tax rate. And then on the other, they have all these regimes for trying to convince the rest of the world um, that when our companies want to leave the United States, that these other countries shouldn't accept them. Fundamentally, that's kind of what they're doing. They're saying, yeah, we know our tax policies are bad and are going to chase companies overseas. So let's do these other things to mitigate the bad. Yeah. Well, when you start designing policies that are so bad, you have to design other ones to mitigate them. Maybe you should start asking some questions. <laughs> Maybe you should question the premise of yeah. your And fundamentally, the administration is misleading the American people on the fundamental premise of their legislation. It has been a bumper sticker uh, attack from progressives for decades, irrespective of what the tax code was, that Republicans ship jobs overseas. It doesn't matter what what the bill it is. That's what they say every time. And they're doing it again. The problem is the Joint Committee on Taxation said the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act improved incentives to invest in the United States. There have been plenty of reasons over the years for conservatives to question, like all congressional scoring agencies, people can find their gripes with um, with their analyses. And, and the JCD has never exactly been viewed as a bastion of um, far-right tax policy assumption. <laughs> um, and yet, that is the verdict from the nonpartisan JCD, is the TCGA made the U.S. a better place to invest in. The Biden administration is out there saying the TCGA chased jobs overseas. It's encouraging offshoring. It's just not true. And yeah. they're saying it anyway. Yeah. Because most people don't care, or, and frankly, the journalists that cover this aren't going to push back too hard. Right, um, right. It's frustrating. So, Gordon, let's go through some of those other tax proposals in here. The Biden administration also is proposing to establish a global minimum tax of 21%. First, explain what the global minimum tax is for those of us who aren't deep in tax policy, but also, and then what its purpose is. So, before we talk about specifically what the Biden administration wants to do with respect to a global minimum tax, I just have to take a little bit of a, of a trip in time back to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So it made a number of changes to how the U.S. taxes foreign income. And in addition to the substantial reduction in the corporate tax rate, which, which actually really matters for a lot of the other pieces in business taxation, and we can talk about that a little later, but... In addition to the corporate tax rate, which everybody sort of is familiar with, there are a number of other changes made. One of one of them was moving towards a, a so-called territorial system, which exempts 
the active business income of companies overseas. So let's just think of a, a foreign country. Uh, let's say a, a German company builds a, a factory and then an American company builds a factory. Presumably, it should be the policy of the United States to at least not disadvantage the U.S. factory vis-a-vis its foreign competitors overseas. For decades, the U.S. did exactly that. The U.S. would tax the income that that U.S. factory would earn in that foreign jurisdiction, whereas the Germans were not taxed that factory. However, to mitigate the effect of this, the U.S. said, okay, we'll tax you, but you can defer that tax for a long time. And so the time value of money is such that then that the value of that tax fined over time and also gave them um, a little more flexibility. And so it enhanced relative to foreign competitors, the U.S.'s ability to, to compete overseas. Now, you know, as the economy has evolved, we're, there are some new challenges in inter, international taxation. A lot of it has to do with you know, highly valuable intellectual property. So when you think about like America's most successful companies and frankly, the world's most successful companies, a lot of it is basically brilliant innovation. So, you know, you look on the back of your iPhone, you know, there's a, there's a little novella about where, it's, you know, they, they can't quite bring themselves to say, yeah, it's made in China. So instead they do the, what, what is it, made, you know, designed in California and made in China. Well, that's kind of a lot of the modern U.S. economy is the design, the innovation, and, and that's highly valuable stuff in intellectual property. And then we leverage our comparative advantage and have these phones made uh, overseas and uh, while the U.S. is doing the sort of high-tech stuff and it's um, good jobs and it's a you know, tremendously vibrant part of the U.S. economy. It's also a lot easier for tax purposes to move those patents and innovation to, you know, a filing cabinet in the Bahamas or or low tax jurisdiction. And so to address that feature, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, created what's called GILTI, the Global Intangible Low Income, excuse me, Global Intangible Low Tax Income uh, Regime. And it is essentially a minimum tax on what looks like income from patents overseas. The tax is designed so it doesn't necessarily just capture income from IP, but it, as long as the income looks like IP income, it essentially gets captured by that. And the way they do that is essentially they exempt an amount, basically 10% of tangible investment in a company. And I know we've sort of gone way into the weeds on, <laughs> on stuff, but hopefully you can forgive me just briefly. And the reason why exemption is in there is to exempt our hypothetical U.S. factory. So let's say, you know, the U.S. wants to build cars overseas. We build a Ford plant in, you know, again, in Germany or wherever. You know, that's an old line business, got known costs. It's got a lot of inputs, labor, capital, and it will give rise to what is presumed to be a fairly ordinary rate of return. So you build a factory, you get a fairly ordinary rate of return on that investment. You know, not like, say, the patent for... I'm being overly simplistic, but let's say Facebook was distilled down into one patent. That would essentially just be a piece of paper worth billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. That's not a Ford factory overseas with workers and stuff. And so the way Guilty works is it looks at, wow, this thing, this entity overseas, this IP is generating all this income with no expense, essentially. There's no inputs. There's no investment. And so essentially Guilty carves out uh, and exempts from from this regime stuff that looks like factories, stuff that looks like high income stuff gets taxed at a minimum rate, and that's to ensure with all the other pieces of the TCGA is that we are not 
incentivizing the ability for U.S. companies to essentially stash all their valuable IP in a filing cabinet overseas. What the Biden administration is doing is saying, yeah, guilty is great. Let's now get rid of the exemption for um, the normal rate of return. So now we've basically gone back to the pre-CTGA world without the mitigation of deferral that allowed that factory to compete overseas. We are now, under this regime, treating that factory for tax purposes the same as a patent stashed in a law firm's you know, filing cabinet in Bermuda. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this requires that other U.S. partners, you, you know, the other U.S. world economies all say, that seems like a great idea. Let's all get on board with this minimum tax. Yeah, because if the U.S. imposes a minimum tax, well, why would companies want to be part of that? We'd go back to this sort of world where we saw inversions uh, happening every month. And so the Biden administration, in addition to calling for the minimum tax, a big corporate tax increase and some other policies are saying, hey, world, why don't you join us in this minimum tax and and stop cutting your corporate tax rates that you've been doing, presumably because uh, it's in your interest to do so. Quit it. That's making it hard on us to raise our corporate tax rates. That's what, what's going on here. And so that's kind of the, the third piece of this. And none of it hangs together individually. Once you raise the corporate tax rate, you have to consider the fact that you're now incentivizing companies to leave the U.S. like they used to. And so that's why they have the minimum tax. But if you have the corporate tax, high corporate tax rate and the minimum tax, unless the rest of the world gets on board, companies are going to – that will further incentivize the rationale to invert for tax purposes. So now they're saying, hey, every other country, get on board. So you can sort of tell every one of these little pieces acknowledges the fact that they're basically making the tax code worse. I mean, <laughs> this is all part of their stated goal to end the, as you as you mentioned in your recent paper, end the race to the bottom around the world. Um, is that what this basically means? Yeah. So the quote race to the bottom is other com- countries, many are democracies, substantially all on the OECD, um, have determined that their corporate rates should be what they are. Now, the U.S. has found that desperately inconvenient because (laughs) it turns out we didn't like it that we had a terrible tax system for years, couldn't muster the the political will to change it. And other countries were saying, well, come on over. And (laughs) instead of competing, we're saying, hey, everybody, give up. I don't think they're going to find that too terribly convincing. Mm -hmm. The final piece of this tax part of the bill I wanted to talk about is this minimum tax on large corporations' book income. Um, I've heard a little bit about this. Can you explain what this is and what what this means for the economy? Yeah, this one one is utterly maddening um, because it is an artifice. One of the problems in the public policy debate with respect to corporations, uh, other than just the the whole optics of it are terrible, that's, that's why raising taxes on big, nameless, faceless multinationals is always possible. Part of it is that it's really complicated, and it's easy to exploit sort of the public, at best, apathy, um, probably more likely hostility to some of these companies, and the complexity. Advocates have a built-in advantage in that you have not wildly sympathetic actors, and it's too complicated for people to be like, hmm, that doesn't make sense. So one of the worst examples of this is in the disparity between what a company actually pays in taxes and information related to their tax payments that are publicly disclosed. So major corporations have to file their financial books with the SEC, you know, their financial statements with the SEC. The financial statements include information on their tax payments, but the information on those tax payments is calculated 
on the basis of financial accounting. So that's what's called generally acceptable accounting practices, GAAP accounting. GAAP standards are devised by a nonprofit corporation called uh, FASB, the uh, Financial Accounting Standards Board, and um, whereas tax policy is fundamentally a function of the Congress and uh, elected officials. So the only public information that most Americans get about a major company's tax information is in their financial standards, but they're not presented in a way that reflects their actual tax payments because we, d- we don't get their tax file. Mm-hmm. Instead, we get this other thing. That doesn't prevent people from pointing at this other thing and saying, hey, they didn't pay any taxes or they paid this much in taxes when they fundamentally did not pay that amount in taxes. It just happens to be what's available uh, in terms of the information about their, their tax file. But because there are gaps between what is reported in those financial filings and what a company actually pays in taxes, it can look like in some circumstances, like a profitable company isn't paying its quote, fair share. One of the canonical examples is, of course, Amazon, a, well, a company that, according to its financial filings, was raking in massive profits and not paying any taxes. Well, the reason why that was the case is because Amazon was doing exactly what we designed the tax code to incentivize. Fundamentally, they were doing three things. One is doing substantial just investment. And so the U.S. tax code is designed to incentivize investment. Right now, under the TCGA, we have what's called expensing. And even before the TCGA, there was variously different regimes that allowed businesses to write off a significant portion of their investments up front. So it's more valuable for a company if they can, uh, you know, if you build a widget or build a factory for a dollar under expensing in the TCGA, they get to deduct that full dollar in the first year of their tax. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of economic reasons why um, that that is wise policy. It reduces. It's called the marginal uh, the marginal effective tax to zero on investment. That's a good thing, and it is exactly what we've designed the, the tax code to do. Unfortunately, gap accounting doesn't reflect that. Instead, irrespective of what the tax code says, essentially what uh, that company building uh, that dot one dollar factory, it has to basically break that dollar out and amortize it over a over a period of time, depending on the particular investment. And so you have a built-in sort of gap between a company's tax filing and a company's public financial disclosures. And so on the one hand, it can look like a company uh, was basically cheating on their taxes because uh, their tax filings, they'll get the full credit for that investment. And so that will be deducted from their taxes, but that the amount they pay in taxes will show up in their financial disclosure. But the investment they made on their financial disclosure is you know, amortized over a long period of time. And so you, it, you, it looks like a disconnect, but it's not. The second thing where you get this treatment is in research and development. The research and development tax credit basically lets companies do something very similar to, to what expensing does as long as they're plowing it in R&D. And because of that, you get the same kind of gap you get for expensing. And so you have a company that is investing in the United States investing in R&D, all the things we talk about wanting wanting to see, but in their public financial disclosure, it looks like they're basically a tax cheat. And that is exactly what progressives say, even though they know that. And that is what's animating this Mickey Mouse book tax. Um, <laughs> it's just a made-up issue. Yeah. It's just all optics. Yeah. And what we're going to end up with is yet another alternative minimum tax, which companies used to have. But the problem with a regime like that is Congress won't be able to help. So there are things in gap accounting 
that we don't allow in tax policy, for example. So in gap accounting, let's say you're um, a chemical company and you are responsible for a massive mercury spill in a town and you get hit with a massive fine. You get to deduct that on your um, you know, financial account, you know, judgment, things like that. And, you know, so you just get and all kinds of fashion like that. So Congress will get involved and say, no, 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 that's not the right measure. And then you'll now have basically three different files. You'll have the financial accounting, you'll have the tax filing, and then you'll have this other thing that companies will have to calculate um, to see if they get hit with a minimum tax. So it's just a terrible idea that is born out of misinformation. Yeah. Seems like there's a lot going on with all of the tax policy changes. I'm sure you'll have a lot more to say on this, whether it be on your insights or we have you back here on the podcast. But let's turn to something else that's sort of maddening right now, and that's the federal budget. President Biden released his so-called skinny budget request earlier this week, but there's still a lot unknown about this whole thing. What are your key takeaways from this release? Uh, very little. Uh, <laughs> so first of all, it, it is it is typical of an incoming administration to be late with their budget. The Budget Act says that a, a new administration needs to have it essentially by first week in February. New administrations don't have that kind of time, and it's not reasonable that they won't. So it, it is usually the, the case that basically May, April, we see something like a, a, a federal budget. Now, a budget includes all aspects of uh, both revenue and spending. So we know how much we're planning on spending and how much we're taking in to finance that. And then we can understand sort of what the trajectory of federal finance will be. This has none of that. This has just request to the Appropriations Committee for how much money the Biden administration wants for its respective agencies. Related, it also does not have uh, any economic assumptions. So the macroeconomic outlook is, I'd say, pretty, uh, pretty consequential in determining a budget. It uh, informs how much tax revenue you're going to have over the next decade. It, it informs and reflects the success or failure of the policies that are assumed in that budget. When a president proposes a budget, they have tremendous amounts of discretion uh, that they can exercise in, in, in the assumptions. The Trump administration, I've written on this, you know, assumed that we'd have 3% real growth as far as the eye could see. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. But you know what? They get to they get to assume that and then put it out there for people like me to say, no, that's lousy. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> but at least they, they do it. They go through the exercise. You know, they put their name on it. They say, this is our budget. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're getting here. We're not getting a plan. We're yeah. just getting basically a request for an increase in their allowance. Yeah. Unless, of course, you're the Defense Department, in which case, in real terms, uh, the DOD's budget is getting cut. Yeah. And this is just, to me, smacks of sort of performative nonsense. Yeah. There has been no change that I'm aware of in the national defense strategy. The Biden administration hasn't released a new national defense strategy, a new national security strategy. Determining the DOD's budget from the budget up is completely wrong. We should determine the DOD's budget from the mission sets and the strategy that we have in mind for the, the defense apparatus. Mm -hmm. If you haven't changed the mission and you haven't changed the strategy, what basis is there for changing? the financing and resourcing of that mission set. Yeah. There is none. There's just the fact that people like Bernie Sanders want to cut the defense budget for no other reason than they don't like it. Mm -hmm. There is no policy rationale. Yeah. yeah. Last I checked, the world is getting more dangerous. Yeah. Not less. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the other side of this too, I mean, one of the eye-popping things was uh, 
Um, the request in, I think, 16% increase in non-domestic spending, which is incredibly large, um, particularly given the trillions in extra spending Congress has doled out over the past year and the multi-trillion dollar spending plans that Biden's administration keeps sending out. What do you make of these requests? Is it, I mean, I mean, loaded question, but is it reasonable? What I make of it is that they don't know what to make of it. It is utterly incoherent. There is not a single coherent thread throughout any of the when you st- throughout the fiscal policy of this administration. On the one hand, the administration wants to hand out another four trillion dollars, you know, one, including the the last last bill. And then I guess there's going to be another bill, the American Family Plan, which will be trillions more. Just the child child tax credit alone will be one one and a half trillion. They're going to want to raise taxes on that, but I doubt it will be sufficient to cover the the amount in spending. So on the one hand, you get an an argument that is kind of this newer view of the risk of debt and deficits, you know, basically hinges on the fact that interest rates are stubbornly low and the assumption is that they won't go up. That seems, I don't know. Last time I heard that, you know, uh, something in in finance is um, never going to alter its trajectory. I believe last time I heard that, you know, housing prices. I, I get nervous. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of the fiscal policy is basically built on the assumption that we can just borrow more without much risk. So the value of, of a dollar is, uh, or at least the risk of borrowing that extra dollar, since we're, we don't take, it, take in anything like what is needed to pay for this stuff, is that it's fairly risky. And then on the other hand, when it comes to the defense budget, all of a sudden uh, they got their green eye shades on. I just fundamentally don't know what the animating principle is when it comes to the disposition of taxpayer dollars from the Biden administration. I just don't. You know, with the American Jobs Plan, they want to raise all these taxes to, quote, pay for it, but not. But they're not actually paying for it. Instead, it just looks performative to me. They want to raise taxes on companies. They didn't like the TCGA, so they're just doing it to do it. They don't think it matters that much, or they think that it does matter, but you can design all these other lousy policies to mitigate the lousiness of one of the other policies. So I just don't get a coherent argument or a coherent philosophy on fiscal policy from the administration. Yeah. Well, something we'll have to continue to watch for, and hopefully soon we'll get a budget with all those economic indicators, and we'll have you back on to discuss all those. But let's switch gears, Gordon. I want to cover one final topic before I let you go. You've been very vocal about your concerns with the Democrats' multi-employer pension bailout, which they included in their last spending bill. There has not been a lot of attention on this issue, so I want to end our discussion with it today. Could you walk us through what happened here and what the effect of this bailout will be? Yeah. So for years, policymakers, federal watchdogs, the agencies that oversee them have been warning about the financial wherewithal of multi-employer pensions. Multi-employer pensions are collectively bargained retirement plans that have been increasingly under financial duress. Essentially, the philosophy behind these were if you're a union driver, one year you may be driving for hostess. You know, if you're a teamster, another Another year, you may be driving for, um, you know, UPS. And so you ought to be able to have your benefits just essentially stay with you or stay with this plan irrespective of your employer. Okay. You sort of get the argument there. Well, sure enough, a lot of employers started pulling out of these plans. A lot of these plans um, decided to forego a lot of, you know, the, the necessary contributions to pay for future benefits. Essentially, and fundamentally, these plans have been promising more than the plans were able to pay. This seems to be a problem that 
always happens in these defined benefit plans. Let us look at Social Security, for example. Um, these plans always promise more benefits than ultimately people are, are willing to finance. And that's what's going on here. You, you've got one of the, the biggest plans is about ready to go under, and it's so big and so underfunded that when it goes under, it could take, there's a federal insurance program that's supposed to backstop these plans. But of course, these plans haven't been paying sufficient uh, insurance premiums to the federal backstop to have a robust enough backstop to prevent the whole system from going under when the biggest plan goes under, which is going to happen in a couple of years if some congressional action uh, weren't taken. So Congress did start a process of bipartisan negotiation to address the most distressed plans. The opening bid from progressives was a big loan. So taxpayers would give a big loan to these, these plans. The plans wouldn't have to pay it back for 30 years, and then they would have to start paying it back. Well, there were a lot of reasons why that was problematic, not least of which was it wouldn't solve the problem. It would just sort of kick the can down the road. Republicans started looking at some type of assistance, which was a huge lift, because let's remember, these are private companies making promises, private plans and private employees. There's other than this insurance backstop, which is not paid with for with taxpayer money, or wasn't until the most recent legislation. This is all private companies. There there shouldn't be taxpayer involved. But Republicans came around to the fact that, wow, these plans are so bad, so terrible. When they go under, Congress is going to write a big check to these retirees. Like that's just what's going to happen. That is what is always happening. So if we get ahead of this now, we can do it a little bit more prudent. And so there was something like progress, low bipartisan progress, to address the underfunding in these plans in a responsible way. Well, then, of course, the election happens, and the you know first piece of legislation out the gate from the Biden administration is $1.9 trillion. It was so big that nobody really had time to care about $80 billion in bailouts to these plans. The heck of it is, is that the bailout, in, which was just, I mean, the ledge text, the text in the bill just said, basically, taxpayer will provide all the money necessary for these plans to pay benefits for the next 30 years. You, me, as a taxpayer, are now financing the retirement benefits of private work. But, I mean, this legislation was so bad, they wouldn't have stood a chance of passing on its own. Yeah. But the American Rescue Plan was so big that this just didn't great. <laughs> So they wow. stuffed it in there and got it over the over the finish line. And it's among the most crass bailouts I've ever seen. And this is a thing, a, a topic I've I've worked on for years and, and, and do care about. And and this was really crass. Yeah, I mean, I kind of lied earlier about that being the last question because I have one one you know, <laughs> so I have one final question for you now. I mean, you're the budget guy. We just had this long conversation about all the spending. Um, you've also been around Washington for for a while. So, I mean, how much longer will the appetite for one huge spending bill after another last? How much longer can Washington continue to spend at this rate before you know this is real trouble? There's always room for one more. Yeah. However big, however indebted. We'll just do it one more time. No, no, right. no. This is the critical priority. No, no, no. These people deserve it. Fairness. That, I mean, and that's one of the reasons why I would like to at least see a budget, no matter how contrived or ridiculous it is. It would be worth seeing on paper the administration grapple with that very question. Yeah. Hopefully we get one soon. Gordon, thanks again for joining us today. This is a great discussion. Hopefully people will learn a lot and pay attention to some of these issues. Sounds good. Appreciate uh, being on. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. 
Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.